All right, well, here we are. We are two days away from the election of the 45th president of the United States. In two days, millions of people are going to be uh, super excited. And in two days, millions of people are going to be angry and depressed. And we're not sure which group is going to be, you know, uh, which emotion, but we know that that is going to be uh, the result. And this election cycle has been, at least in my lifetime, I'm 48 years old, so some of you have been through more than I have, but in my lifetime, this is the most like divisive, the most rancorous, the most mudslinging election that I have ever uh, seen. And the, uh, the country seems so divided, the electorate is divided, and uh, I just think the result of that is going to be that on Tuesday night, there's going to be a real temptation to be either too triumphant or too depressed. And today I want to talk about uh, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man and uh, to, to prepare us for Wednesday, okay? I, in fact, there's a famous sermon entitled, It's Friday, But Sunday's Coming. Maybe you've heard that before. I thought about entitling this message, It's Sunday, But Wednesday's Coming. Uh, because how do we wake up on Wednesday morning, no matter who wins and who's in office or any of that? What is a Christian's response uh, as a citizen of the kingdom of God to the rise and falling of political people in the kingdom of man? And we've been doing this series on the kingdom of God from Matthew, and in light of this once every four-year presidential election, last Sunday and this Sunday, we're doing a little mini-series within this overall Kingdom of God series about human government and a Christian's responsibility under it. So last week we went to Matthew 22, and I told you last week that this really is part two of that message. It's kind of like, you know, we had an intermission of a week, and now we're just going to sort of pick it up. So I'm not going to get into all of that, but just to review a little bit what we saw last week in Matthew 22, Jesus... Here you have Jesus. The Pharisees, they're desperate. They're trying to get some dirt on him. This is like first century WikiLeaks, right? Because if they can get some dirt on him, they want to minimize him. They want to marginalize him. They really want to murder him. And the way that they are attacking Jesus is through subtlety. And they know that in particular, they have one huge advantage, and that is the Romans. The Romans were the occupying nation of the day. They, they ruled the known world in the first century. And the Pharisees knew that if they, if, if they could get Jesus on a political issue to side against Rome, that then they could say he's an insurrectionist, he's a, he's a, uh, a revolutionary, and he's a threat, Rome. Pilate, Herod, he's a threat to you. You need to take him out. And we know that the Romans had no problem taking people out if they ever thought that there was a threat against them. At the same time, at the very least, if we could at least minimize his standing in the eyes of the people, because everywhere he went, there's thousands of people, they're hanging on his every word, they want to know everything he's doing, he's doing miracles, everyone's talking about him, they want to minimize Jesus in the eyes of the Jews. So, what do you do? Well, this is what they did. They came to Jesus one day with a, with a, a gotcha question. It's Matthew 22, verse 17. Tell us then, what do you think, Jesus? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now on the surface, simple question. Should we pay our taxes? 
Yes, we should pay our taxes, but that's not really specifically what they were asking. It's not should you pay your taxes, but should we pay taxes to Caesar? And it's the to Caesar part that was the gotcha, because Caesar represented Rome. This was, at the time, was uh, Tiberius. Julius Caesar was the Caesar in the first century, and he was the head of the Roman Empire. He was the, the figurehead of of all that Rome had done in coming in and murdering and bludgeoning and taking power in the way that they did. And the Jews very much hated and resented the Romans and their presence and their tax collectors and their taxes and all of that. And so they come to Jesus with this seemingly simple question, is it okay, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now within this, again, is this sort of wedge issue with Jesus because if he says, uh, yes, it's okay to pay taxes to, to Caesar. Well, now the Jews think he's a sellout, right? Sort of first century Benedict Arnold type guy. Oh, really? That's the way that you're going to be, Jesus? You're siding with the Romans. And now he's not as popular. But if he says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, which is what the Jews would want him to hear, the Pharisees go to the Romans and they say, this guy is leading an insurrection against you. And the Pharisees knew that it was only the Romans that could legally execute anyone, particularly by crucifixion, which is what their real goal was. And so this very simple question is a total gotcha to Jesus. So what's he going to do? What's he going to say? This is Jesus' response. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. What a wise statement that was, right? Almost as if he's God. (laughs) Wisdom of God on display. And this one sentence here, arguably the most important sentence in the entire Bible, describing Not just human government, but man's responsibility to human government and human government's responsibility to God. He says here that we are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now you could look at that and say, well, I guess what that means is there are things that are Caesar's and there are things that are God's. And we just give to one or the other. Maybe to to picture it this way, if we put this uh, up here, and I I need to acknowledge that uh, a blogger named Jonathan Lehman, I'm borrowing these from him. You could look at this, and you could say, well, this is the way that it is. Caesar's got stuff. God's got stuff. Give to Caesar his stuff. Give to God his stuff. No problem. And if this sounds familiar to you, it's because this is the way that philosophical liberalism presents Uh, religion and government today. The result of this is the privatization of faith. Okay, We live in a day where we're free to worship and to believe, but increasingly are pressured to keep those beliefs and faith, uh, faith statements behind the walls of the church or behind the the walls of your home. And we are not to bring them out in public discourse. We are not to bring them into the public square. This is the the famous book called uh, The Naked Square. One pastor, theologian wrote about that, describing the public square, the political square, devoid of God. It's naked. It has no morality. It's just secular. And that's, this is the world that we, that we live in presently. We are not to bring it up. 
We're not to bring it out. You can have your kooky religious beliefs if you want. Just don't bring them into any kind of serious conversation and certainly don't bring them into the halls of Congress or the voting booth, uh, by the way. You've heard of the separation of church and state, okay? In our day, it is the, not just the separation of church and state, it is the elimination of church from the state, okay? And that's what secularism is. It's, it's, it's a humanistic, atheistic, governmental uh, uh, philosophy. There is no God, it's all man, okay? Or to say it this way, okay, this is really the aim of Caesar. Caesar always wants to expand his control and expand his influence and to diminish and to minimize the role of God and the, the, the doctrines of God. And it's not just Christianity, but really many other faiths as well, okay? There are wedge issues uh, uh, like this, that, that they talk about tolerance or political correctness. These are these are veiled attempts to minimize faith talk, religious talk, God talk, morality rooted in a divine being. This is what's behind the get rid of the Ten Commandments out of the courthouse and all these other things. What's going on? Caesar wants everything. Caesar wants it all. Now, this ought to sound uh, a little familiar to you if you're thinking sort of biblically and theologically, because where did this begin? It began back in the garden when Satan comes to Eve and says to her, listen, this kingdom of God thing that you're living under, it's not so good, okay? What you really need is you need to take and eat of this fruit. God knows that if you do that, you will become like him, and he doesn't want you to become like him. He doesn't want your circle to become like his circle, but if you're going to have a circle, you better eat of this tree. And so Eve eats, Adam eats, and in that moment, for the very first time, there is carved into the universe one very small little spot that is not under the authority of God. It's the kingdom of man. And man has aspired to be God ever since, always wanting to grow, always wanting what only God has, specifically two things, sovereignty and omnipotence, okay? The control over everything and the power over everything. Caesar always wants these divine attributes. But notice that Jesus' statement here doesn't give Caesar autonomy from God. Why? Render to God the things that are God's is the second part of the statement. Okay, well, we ask the question, what things are God's? And the Bible is clear, everything is God's right? Everything is God's. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, okay? So everything is God's, including Caesar. Caesar is not God or demigod. Rather, this is really what Jesus is saying here. Notice this, uh, this graph right here, if you put it up, please. This is Matthew 22. Everything's God's. And in God's plan, he has delegated to human government certain responsibilities over the governing of the affairs of society, which this began all the way back, you go back to Genesis 1, when God said, multiply, fill the earth, exercise dominion over it. That exercising of dominion requires a certain amount of organizing of human society, of governing, and in some ways controlling of human society. 
Now, when we are rendering to Caesar taxes or obeying civic laws, we are doing this in the broader circle, then, of God's will for humanity. That's why we can say, as Romans 13 says, we all should submit to the governing authorities that are over us. That's part of God's plan for what it means just to be human. doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. That's just human living in society, living under government. But what Jesus is saying here is that Caesar also is under God. That Caesar needs to render to God the things that are God's. And the best human governments will orient their governing that way in order to promote the flourishing of human society. These include things like this, freedom of religion, social justice, punishing and threatening the evildoer by wielding the sword. If you want to know the essence of what government has to do, Romans 13, government has to punish the evildoer. And if there is no sword in society, that's lawlessness. That's not society as God intended. God is not a God of disorder. He is a God of order. And when human government is not exercising justice on the evildoer, mankind goes crazy, Lord of the Flies. Is that the name of the book, I think? Did I get that right? Lord of the Flies. It's an old seventh grade book I had to read about uh, 12-year-old boys that live on an island in utter chaos. It's kind of like sixth grade so in any, in any school locally. So um, that's what government has to do. But Caesar always wants more than what God has said is your circle. It wants, Caesar wants more authority. Caesar wants more control. And the reason that Caesar wants this is human pride. Human pride wants more and more glory to itself. And the ultimate goal of human pride is to displace God, indeed to re replace God, to be God, okay? To own the entire circle. Let's go back into the story. This is not the first time. We don't, we're not the first society living with this sort of encroachment. What was the Tower of Babel? And why was it such an affront to God that mankind all assembled in one place and built one giant monument to the glory of himself? What was man doing? Man was trying to say, we are the circle, we don't need you. And God steps in, separates mankind by dividing through language and the spreading of humanity across the globe. What was Nebuchadnezzar's giant golden statue that he required everybody to come and to bow down to and why did Shadrach Meshach and Abednego say we are not going to bow down to your golden statue we are not going to acknowledge that you are the entire circle Nebuchadnezzar what was that all about or to think about in the first century that Jesus lived in what was the key religion of the of the Roman Empire Caesar is Lord. Hail Caesar. And Caesar wanted all of the glory. And that's why Christianity was such a threat to it, is that it was saying, Caesar isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord, right? Christ is Lord. Rome didn't like it. Caesar didn't like it. Caesar's never like that because Caesars want the entire circle. That's human pride. And do not forget that Revelation tells us that someday... What is going to happen is that there is going to be one person who is going to assume all control and power in the world. 
and that there is going to be one world government, and that one world government is going to control every aspect of everybody's lives right down to the money that you use in your commerce and the purchases or the freedom to purchase or not. That is what is coming. That is anti-Christ. It is anti-God. It is one human being empowered by Satan himself to rule over everything as if he was God. He is the ultimate Caesar. That's where all of this is going. And so whenever you have governmental systems like totalitarian systems, communism, fascism, other isms like that, they are foreshadowing a kind of control and dominion and authority over everything, which someday the Antichrist will embody in all of its fullness. It will be the Tower of Babel all over again. Now, we still haven't answered, how do we wake up on Wednesday? Okay? Thank you, Pastor Steve, for that sort of analysis. Uh, but I got to wake up Wednesday, and I'm not sure the person I hope wins, wins. So how do I wake up on Wednesday? Or to ask this question, what is a Christian's responsibility to government? And how should we have an effect on the society? And I want to stay in Matthew to answer this. Uh, Let's go back to Matthew 5, if you would. This is Sermon on the Mount. Your Bible may just flop open to it because it's uh, much loved, much read, I hope for you. Matthew 5. Here's what Jesus says should be the effect of Christians on everything. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, if you've been a Christian very long, I imagine that's not the first time you've heard those words. These are very well-known words from the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, even historically, these are words that even uh, famous politicians, presidents of the United States, have drawn on this language. Specifically, John F. Kennedy used this very passage, and Ronald Reagan used this very passage. Married, by the way, here in Crown Point. Just throw that out there. Uh, you didn't know that, did you? Ronald Reagan married right here in Crown Point. I don't know why that's significant to the sermon, but I throw it in, okay? <laughs> Maybe it's because I got married in Crown Point myself. I don't know. Anyway, so these politicians use this language typically describing America as a city on a hill, which is great patriotically. It is horrible hermeneutically. This is not accurate to what Jesus is describing here. Jesus isn't saying, you know, someday in 2,000 years there's going to be this country, and that country is going to be a bright light in the world. No. What is Jesus, what is the light that he's talking about? What is the city It is the collective good works and effect of citizens of the kingdom of God on the society that they live in. That's what the light is. You see that? Your good works, which leads people to give glory to our Father in heaven. And he goes on to say that these good works, this effect of Christians in society, you don't don't take light like that and and, uh, put it under a bushel. 
All the kids in our children's ministry, they know this. No, you let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Won't let Satan it out. I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Our kids know that. Do you know that? And do we connect that with even this issue of Christians in relationship to government? Okay. We let our good works shine in the world around us. Faithful citizenship by citizens in the king, of the kingdom of God in the kingdom of man will have this effect. Now, here's some comfortable categories that we all would agree on. Ministry to the poor. Okay, so we announced that we have the City Life Center, sort of this ministry thing that we're doing in downtown Gary, poorest community in our entire area would be downtown Gary, and we're going there, and we're helping kids. Nobody here is offended by that, right? Most people go, that's, that's good. That's, that's really good, okay? How about uh, caring for widows? Christians down through history cared for widows. We all say that's good. That's good. How about ministry to orphans? Safe right now, right? Yeah, our light should shine. We should minister to orphans. That's a good thing. How about just generally kindness to strangers and loving our enemies? Okay, all good, right? Nobody here upset by that. We all kind of get light, good works, shining in those places. This is classic Christianity. But what about Christians involved in government? And what about Christians involved in elected office, even seeking office? And what about Christians in the voting booth? Are these places where light should shine, where there should be some effect? Now, i got to tell you, in, in, in what I'm going to share here, I'm indebted to, I mentioned Jonathan Lehman earlier, also uh, Professor Wayne Grudem wrote a massive book on politics and the glory of God, uh, which has been very helpful to me. But Jonathan Lehman points out, when we think about light, Christian light, good works, being done, influential, in office, in governmental office, and in government, that there's, there's three failures that we can make as a church and Christians in uh, relationship to, uh, to human government. Here's the first one. Disengagement. Okay? Disengagement. This is sort of the monks and the monastery approach. We look at society, we say, it's going to hell. Let's find a bunker somewhere and let's hunker in the bunker <laughs> and let's just sort of watch it burn, right? Let's watch it go down and say, we told you so. You abandoned God. And let's just watch it go down. Let's just disengage from this. This is not being salt and light, and this is certainly not the way that heroes of the Bible did this. Let me just give you some examples. Joseph, second to Pharaoh in the great kingdom of Egypt. We have Nehemiah, cupbearer to the king, inner circle, inner advisor to the Persian empire under Artaxerxes. How about Mordecai? This is Esther's uncle, rose to second in the Persian empire under Ahasuerus. Here's the best one. How about Daniel? Think about Daniel a second. Daniel was a, a young man, a teenage boy. You teenage, teenagers, listen to me. Here was Daniel. And during the deportation, 586, under the Babylonians, he gets taken out along with a whole bunch of other people, gets hauled all the way back into this Babylonian country and empire. 
And very quickly, his character, his intellect, the way he conducted himself distinguished him, and he rose to prominence right there into the leadership of the entire country. Daniel was a very key government official of the empire of its day. What did he do? Did he say, well, I'm going to sort of shrink back and just sort of compromise. I'm going to lay low. I'm not going to let anybody know what's going on here. No. His wisdom was on display and his faith was. So when the decree came out that you couldn't pray to anybody but Nebuchadnezzar, what does he do? He goes back to his house. He opens the windows. He does the normal prayer knowing it was the lion's den for anybody that dared not worship Nebuchadnezzar, Caesar of his day, okay? And you know the story, the famous story of Daniel in the lion's den. Dare to be a Daniel as an example of faithful light in darkness. Light doesn't disengage from darkness, okay? When you, when you go into a dark room, you used to say you turn your flashlight on, now you tap the app on your phone, right? The light just goes out, right? It doesn't, it doesn't just think, I don't want to, you know? It just going to wherever I'm going. Darkness, get out of my way, right? That's what light does. It engages. Second failure is surrender. Okay, this is the capitulation option. Some famous examples in history. This would, the easiest example is the German church under Nazi rule during World War II, where essentially they just, they capitulated to Hitler, and they became essentially a political tool for the leader, very evil man, uh, of his day, perhaps the most evil, famous evil man in all of history, Hitler. Uh, as I understand it, the Russian Orthodox Church under the USSR similarly capitulated and became just purely a political tool. Surrender is not an option for us. Here's a third failure, and this one may get a little closer to home, is worldly engagement. Okay? Worldly engagement. This is the error when Christians view political success as spiritual success. This is what lies behind the, uh, boy, if only we had a Christian as the President of the United States. Then now the kingdom of God has come. And, uh, you know, I mean, really, is that what we want necessarily as a Christian? It's kind of like when you're going into surgery. Do you want a mediocre Christian surgeon or a really good atheist? I vote for the atheist. (laughs) I want the best guy with that knife doing surgery on me. And some of the great leaders down through history who have really promoted great things have not been Christians, right? We want quality leaders in leadership over us. But there are many people that try to to turn the local church into a political action group. And where now the orientation of the church and the heart of the Christian is all about the political process, and we sort of tie whether God is winning or God's going to win with whether or not the right people are in office, and we sort of become all politically oriented. This is a failure uh, of, of the church. I mean, to this day, if you say moral majority, what do people think? Christians shoving their agenda down our throat, right? And even the former leaders, Cal Thomas and Ed Dobson, leaders in the moral majority, wrote a book saying what we did was terrible. Okay? That was a mistake. We should not have done that. I just think we've got to always beware of wrapping the cross and the American flag or any other flag for that matter. Okay? So if we're not to go into a bunker and if we're not to surrender 
And if we are not to compromise, what are we to do? And here's where I agree with Dr. Grudem in what he calls significant influence. Significant influence. Let me read his description here of significant influence. This is really good. The significant influence view says that Christians should seek to influence civil government according to God's moral standards and God's purposes for government as revealed in the Bible. But while Christians exercise this influence, they must simultaneously insist on protecting freedom of religion for all citizens. In addition, significant influence does not mean angry, belligerent, intolerant, judgmental, red-faced, and hate-filled influence, but rather winsome, kind, thoughtful, loving, persuasive influence that is suitable to each circumstance and that always protects the other person's right to disagree. But that is also uncompromising about the truthfulness and moral goodness of the teachings of God's word. This is what I am encouraging to be the perspective of my role, our role in government. This allows the church to maintain its prophetic role because in the end, that is what we are ultimately called to. Jesus went around not proclaiming the kingdom of man, but the kingdom of God. It is at hand. We're called to proclaim the gospel. We are, we are about the kingdom of God, but we live in the kingdom of man. And so we have to avoid politicizing the church somehow. I've appreciated Billy Graham's example with this. Advisor to so many presidents over the year, to my knowledge, he never endorsed one of them. Okay? That doesn't mean going into a bunker. Okay? Light always engages darkness. Again, it doesn't, you turn your, your, your flashlight on on your phone, it doesn't go out you know, and go, oh, I don't want to do this. No, it just goes where it goes, right? We just let our light shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. We're not hiding under a bushel. We're not hiding in a bunker. We are letting our good works speak for themselves as we live in society and do the things that God has called us to do. And God's truth is light here. And governments that govern according to God's principles for government are governments that will flourish. This is known as common grace. God has established the world in such a way there are certain things that lead to human flourishing and the blessing on society, and there are certain things that when they are done by government and leaders lead to bad things. So for example, Proverbs 14.34, righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. When a country is living in a general direction of promoting moral truths that are aligned with God's purposes, there are blessings that God has built in that come to those people. And when there is a people that are given over to sin and immorality and things that are against God's plan, we don't break the Ten Commandments, they break us, right? And there are things that people suffer as a result of that. Another proverb comes to my mind, where there is no king, there are, the land has many princes, Okay? Things like that. God has just established the world this way. So when Christianity influences, that influence ought to be towards, in government, God's wisdom and will. And this includes things like human dignity, morality, the inherent value of human life made in the image of God, religious freedom, social justice, the punishment of evil. The promoting of good, the promoting of his gifts, God's gifts to society, including marriage and family and children and loving your neighbor. 
Think of the, for example, think of the moral principles, go back into history a little bit, think of the moral principles that are behind the effect of William Wilberforce in England and Martin Luther King in the last century, okay? Wilberforce, huge champion uh, against the African slave trade, literally changed the world. It was a lifelong effort on him. You ought to read about William Wilberforce. What lied, what was behind that passion that he had? What lied behind it was the inherent dignity of all human life and that these slaves that were being traded and sold were human beings in the image of God. And he called upon the conscience of the English people to apply that same principle to the people that were being traded. Martin Luther King Jr., more recent, you're probably more familiar with him, the things that he was doing, and you may not agree with Wilberforce's policies and politics or Martin Luther King Jr., but what lied behind what his message was? It was the biblical principle that we are all made in the image of God. And the effect of both of their lives as two examples was that society moved towards the direction of principles that are found in God's word to the blessing of many, many people. Here's Jeremiah 29.7. You say, I want a verse. Here's, Here's your verse, okay? But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. What God tells Jeremiah to do is to be a significant influence. Pray, work, labor for the good of the society. They, 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 were, they, had, been de- they had not been deported. They left. Jeremiah left. They got out of Israel with all the things that were going on. And yet even in a foreign country, in a foreign land, he was to try to promote the good of the city and the good of the people there. That's how Christians ought to be in government and in society to work for the good of the people around us. This is loving our neighbor as ourself. So what does this mean? Let me tie it all together here, okay? A couple principles. Let's bring it together. Here's what it means. Number one, it means that Christians should seek to significantly influence every category of society. We could say, well, we're just going to focus on the widows and the orphans, and we're going to let the government thing go, whatever happens with them. No, we're called... We're called to glorify God in every aspect of life and to strive for the glorifying of God in every category of society. Again, loving your neighbor as yourself includes using every tool available to promote human flourishing. This means influencing things as we're able and appropriately and winsomely and lovingly, but influencing things towards the direction of God's will and purpose, including human government. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Don't walk past the guy that's been beat up and act like you don't care about him. That's not loving your neighbor. And as we drive around in our community, in our society, and we see schools and parks and people and all the things, we can just drive by and go, well, too bad for you. Or do we engage in the kinds of systems and processes that would promote the good of the people living in those places and going to those schools and working in those spots. Christians, we're called to care about all of that, okay? We can't just categorize our love in certain areas. Love your neighbor as yourself no matter where we find our neighbor. Secondly, Christians can serve in government as a means to significant influence. It's totally legit for Christians to serve in public office. 
Now, does that mean every Christian that runs for office, we have to vote for them automatically because they're a Christian? No, it doesn't. Does that mean every Christian that goes is doing so for the noblest of reasons with no desire for power and control? No, it doesn't mean that, okay? But what it does mean is that Christians in political office can serve as an act of service to God. And if their heart's desire is to significantly influence the systems that guide the direction of society, that this can be pleasing to the Lord. And there are challenges with this, but this is a good thing, okay? It's a good thing. Third, in a democracy, and I want everybody to pay attention here, in a a democracy, voting is a Christian stewardship. I appreciate Pastor Mark Dever makes this point, that democracy means that we are to submit to the authorities that are over us, but in a democracy, we are in a very small respect ourselves Caesar. You have a vote as an American citizen, and in that little small way, you are stewarding authority that God has given to you in a democracy to guide and to direct You can't complain about what big C Caesar is doing if you are not faithful with your little C responsibility, Caesar. And if we're to pray for peace and pray for the good of our society, shouldn't we at minimum vote towards those same goals? Okay, And to vote as best we can tell for the candidate that we think is going to lead in the direction that God has outlined generally that government is supposed to be. It seems to me that we should do that. Now remember, when you're in the ballot box and you're doing that, every one of those, every name you see is a sinner, okay? Sinner, 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 sinner. All the way down, they're all sinners. There's no guarantees. Who knows what some of these people are going to do, okay? But at best you can tell in a general direction Are they going in the direction of God's plan for society, which is to render to Caesar what is Caesar and to render to God what is God's? Now, maybe you can't figure that out. Sometimes it's helpful to see which one is clearly not going in that direction. Figure that out and then vote for the opponent, okay? That might help you. Now, let me just talk about this election. This election in particular has challenges to it that I think all of us are well aware of, okay? So here's my my personal approach to this, this year, is that to view the entire platform as an indication of a general direction of government, okay? The entire platform. And realize that when you are in in a presidential election, it feels like you're voting for a person. But in reality, you're voting for thousands of people, thousands of uh, government officials who are going to make hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of decisions about policy and direction on big and small ways. And so to look at the platform, you see general directions here. And we have currently two political parties who have very divergent perspectives on what government is and its role in society, not to mention Supreme Court justices who will make decisions and basically rule our country for decades to come. That is who you're actually voting for. So I would encourage you to do this and uh, 
with so much mudslinging, I think it's easy to miss some of these little details. So I'm encouraging you to vote, okay? May all the Bethelonians vote. Maybe you're like, ah, I think I'm going to take this year out. No, you have a stewardship responsibility, little C. Caesar, and be a part of being a significant influence in society. Okay, well, how should I vote? Vote for the people that seem to want, in general, to render to God the things that are God's and to render to Caesar things that are Caesar. Vote for that person. That's what I'm encouraging. Here's the last thing, is to realize that Caesar is fading, the true king is on his way. Okay? Caesar is fading, the true king is on his way. Okay? Human government, as we know it, is all part of a world system that is passing away, okay? The Caesars are temporarily on the stage. There they are, and then they're gone. The nations rise, and the nations go, okay? Whoever wins Tuesday, whoever it's going to be, they're going to be there for a little while, and then they're going to be gone. And history, this is history, right? Rise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall. All of that is speaking to the fact that someday... There is a future government, and it is not a democracy. It is an absolute monarchy that is coming. And on the throne is the only king worth our full allegiance and worship, and his name is Jesus. That's who's coming, okay? And Jesus, Jesus will rule this world with perfect justice his government and, and leadership will be in such a direction that human flourishing will happen in a way that hasn't happened ever since Adam and Eve sinned. The effect of his reign will be such that even dry deserts will bloom and rejoice, Isaiah says. The deserts will be dancing and singing and blooming. And here's Isaiah eleven six: The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the Republican will have coffee with the Democrat. <laughs> and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lead them. That is what is coming. And until then, our prayer and our longing is for that king to come. For his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And our cry as we go into the voting booth on Tuesday and as we hear the results and as we wake up on Wednesday, our cry is that he may have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, Psalm 72. So wake up Wednesday, friend. Wake up Wednesday looking forward to the day when there will be no more elections because Jesus will reign forever. Amen. Amen. Amen.